Hi, and welcome to another episode of Interrogatories with Josh Campson. I'm your host, Josh Campson. And today we've got a pretty good episode. Uh, it's with Mark Steinberg. He is possibly the managing partner, possibly not, of Ruben Glickman, Steinberg, and Gifford. Uh, we get into that a little bit in the interview. It says on the website he is. He claims he's not. Now, you might remember the name of this firm because we had his partner, Greg Gifford, on a couple of weeks ago, and both of them have been interested in the podcast and have dabbled in uh, some radio before, so we thought they'd be great guests here on the show. Mark and I talk about the practice of law over the last 30 to 40 to 50 years. Um, we talk about whether or not he should get out of the practice of law to make room for you know, people like me who are up-and-comers, young, just okay looking, but ready to take on some of these more serious cases. And we talk about handling serious cases and what it's like to try uh, the hundreds of cases that he's tried uh, and to handle high profile cases. You know, he's handled serious homicide cases, kidnappings, um, big personal injury cases. He represented former Attorney General Kathleen Kane uh, in her sentencing in front of the trial court here in Montgomery County. So, Mark was a great interview. Uh, it was an interesting lesson. I hope you enjoy it. As always, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, we're only accepting five-star ratings, actually. So if you were going to leave something else, you can just send those uh, complaints to complaints at montgomerybar.org. And as always, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Well, Mark Steinberg, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Good morning. You're actually the second member of your firm to be interviewed on interrogatory. So we'll see. Greg Gifford was on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago. So we'll have to see. We'll let you guys know which one ends up being more popular. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be that. Yeah, well, I think he'll probably say the same thing about you. So you guys are at the same firm, but you're the managing partner. Is that the setup? Uh, presently, he is. Oh. Uh, we tell the outside world that I am because uh, he likes to play with my name. He thinks okay. my name is better than his, but I don't think so. I think more people at present time know Greg than know me. Okay. And so he does all the work and you take all the credit is what it sounds like. Uh, yeah, basically that's true. And, and has that been the history of your work together? Uh, well, I was managing partner from 1980, probably until four or five years ago. So what, 35, 36 years. And where you were doing the work and getting the credit. Yeah. Well, that's unusual in this profession. <laughs> so you've been practicing, what, almost 50 years now, right? Well, 48. 48, okay. Um, that's a long time. It, it is a long time. And how long, much longer do you think your family is going to let you practice before that's they say, practice. look, Mark, let's, uh, well, we're, we're going down the shore. Let's be done. Yeah, because of COVID, I was just in Florida for two and a half months which is the longest period of time I've ever been away from the office or anywhere for that matter. But uh, at, at my age and all the time that I've spent, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, have you ever thought like, hey, there's lots of other, you know, young, just okay looking up and coming lawyers. Maybe we should, you know, make some room in the criminal defense bar. We should, uh, you know, step back and give other people a shot. I'm just throwing it out there. Is it something you've thought about? <laughs> Not quite in those terms, but there are a lot of young people that I definitely are involved now. I mean, you know, with regard to criminal lawyers in 1988, uh, I decided we needed a presence when the court talked to the public defender in the district attorney's office. So I started the criminal defense 
Committee, which we then call the Criminal Defense, Criminal Law Defense Committee. And so you started that because you thought that the courts were just interacting with essentially the public defender's office and not private counsel? Exactly. I mean, with the DA and the public defender, they'd sit down and they'd figure out procedure, which eliminated our involvement. And so I talked to some of the judges and they thought it was a good idea. Uh, so we started the committee and then the court would come to me uh, for my input on behalf of the private criminal court. And then I would take it back to the committee. We started meetings on Fridays once a month and then would discuss what I was learning or participating in. But it gave us a voice, it gave us a seat at the table when they were changing the system. And they have over the years changed the system several times. And what did it look like, the Bar Association back then, when you're creating all these committees that now are, you know, well established? Uh, when I first started, I think the Bar Association was probably about 900 members. Um, obviously, it's grown to probably around 2,400. Uh, when we, when I, I started the committee, maybe there were 1,200, 1,100, 1,200 members of the bar. And were there other standing committees at that point, or was this the first foray into a practice-specific uh, committee? There were other committees, but really none that was dedicated to the practice of criminal law. There was trial lawyers section that we would attend, that I would attend and go to, but Trial lawyers just had a conglomeration of everybody that thought they were a trial lawyer, whether they tried cases or not. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the criminal defense committee was set up specifically for the lawyers that practice criminal law. And now since then, they've established you know, family law, uh, juvenile law, things of that nature. Did any of those practice specific areas exist back then? Family law probably did. Juvenile law probably did not. Uh, I think they were subsequently started. Hard to remember. Yeah, you yeah, know, of course. And uh, speaking of trial lawyers, so you do both criminal defense and civil litigation. Is that right? I did. Yes, I've done both. Started as a uh, judge's law clerk then went into the DA's office. Uh, and then when I left in 1976, just went into the practice. I was hired by Ruben and Glickman to try their cases. And started trying cases in 1976 and haven't stopped since then. How many jury trials do you think you've done? You, you know, you hear people say, oh, I've done thousands. That's not true. No, no. <laughs> I mean, in any given year, if you try six or seven cases, in my opinion, that's a lot. That's a heck of a lot. I mean, especially yeah. these days. So if I counted all the ones that I tried when I was in the DA's office, I, you know, it, it's really hard. I, I don't know, 200, 300, but I don't think any more than that. And I think anybody that says they've tried thousands of cases is just exaggerating. Or though they're counting their non-juries, they're counting hearings as trials. They're doing some kind of uh, creative accounting there. Exactly. It is creative accounting because nobody tries that many cases in private practice. You may as a, a public defender or if you're a dedicated uh, DA, you may, but I don't see it any other way. So now that you've done all these trials, you know, at some point, have you established any 
rituals or customs or superstitions when going into trial? My ritual is probably the mantra of all good trial lawyers, and that's be prepared. Uh, when I try a case, I feel like I'm giving up a part of my intestine to do so, because if I think I'm going to try a case for a week, I, I'm in trial prep for at least three weeks on that week. And you know, I was involved last year in a three-week trial. It took us just weeks to get ready for that trial. And was that a criminal or civil trial? That was a civil trial. Maybe it was the year before. It was in front of Judge uh, Weilheimer. And in the second week of the trial, <laughs> she took me aside and said, Mark, you got to get this thing settled. So after two weeks of trying the case, uh, I put both sides into settling the case. Well, to me, that's really the worst of both worlds. You have to prep and do all the trial work, mm -hmm. and uh, it still gets settled. You don't get to find out if you won or not. Uh, it, it, it was a big dollar case, so yeah. well worth settling the case. Uh, there was a, a great reward because of the settlement. Of course, that's the way that balancing act works, right? Yeah. So since you've been on both sides with the criminal and the civil side, are you not offended that civil plaintiff's lawyers have somehow taken the moniker of trial lawyers, even though I believe that criminal defense lawyers try more cases? And that doesn't offend me because I've done both, but it doesn't offend me anyway. Uh, I, mean, I always thought of a criminal trial lawyer as a trial lawyer. Never distinct. I never made that distinction. Yeah, well, I think you know, when, when you see things like, I mean, it doesn't exist anymore, the American Trial Lawyers Association and things of that nature, uh, that's what makes me think of them as, of the, the quote-unquote moniker trial lawyers as a plaintiff's personal injury slash civil litigation uh, title. But hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm coming into it with my own biases. Yeah, you know, back in the day, uh, I was around, I was one of the founding members of the Pennsylvania uh, Criminal Defense, Criminal Lawyers, PACDL, which I don't know what its name is now. It's the same, uh, Pennsylvania Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Yeah, I, I was one of the, the first people involved in that. I used to go and listen to Chuck Peruto talk all the time, not junior senior, who was just a terrific, terrific lawyer. So you founded, I want to keep it straight, at least uh, the Criminal Defense Bar, the Montgomery Bar Association Criminal Defense Committee, the help found the Pennsylvania Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Well, I didn't help found it. It started. I was just one of the founding members. I mean, one of the first group of people that joined it was gotcha. my idea. Okay. And, and we'll get into some of the other stuff you've helped uh, as a founding member or create, but you know, there's a lot of these organizations and they're time-tested and well-respected organizations. So it makes someone think, you know, what are the organizations that we don't have? And what are the committees and the things that you think there's a void for that somebody should be taking up these days? There probably is, you know, I think what's happened over the years is the practice of law has gotten harder because it's become faster. You, today, if you don't respond to an email in 15 seconds, you're getting all capitals in the email and exclamation points and people complaining. Uh, in, in part, it was the idea, even before we had emails, uh, with the Managing Partners Committee, where a group of us would just get together and we talk about our common problems and our our common successes and help one another practice. Uh, 
especially with COVID, I don't know that that happens so much anymore. The uh, managing partners committee has kind of devolved into um, bringing in people to speak instead of sitting around uh, eating breakfast and talking about hiring associates and what you're going to pay them and what new copy machine you bought and how much it cost you for paper and things like that. So, I mean, I think that that's still something that needs to be done, uh, a sharing, a common sharing of the problems that we face as practicing lawyers getting together. And I, I guess it's really been exacerbated by uh, pandemic. People just haven't been able really to get together. I know we do a lot by Zoom. I mean, I'm Zooming all the time. Uh, and it's crazy, but um, I'm afraid that it will continue and we're going to lose a lot of the relationships that we were all able to establish when we didn't have Zoom and pandemic and things like that. The Bar Association was home. And you don't think that's going to fully bounce back? I don't think so. I, I think we're going to lose a, a lot of the collegiality uh, in the practice of law because of the way things have worked out with the pandemic. You know, pandemic aside, I think pandemic has kind of been obviously a huge weight on the shoulders of uh, membership organizations. But you see the American Bar Association, the Pennsylvania Bar Association, uh, not as much the local bars, but Pactel. I mean, all these organizations kind of suffering for members, people not joining as much, younger lawyers not getting as involved. Uh, what do you think leads to that? What do you think is the cause of that? Is it just a generational difference? Is it um, too expensive? What, what do you think is the cause? And what have you seen in your own office? Well, I think initially it's, it's the cost if your office doesn't cover it. I mean, we have people, you know, when our new people come in, we join the Bar Association for them. We encourage them to get involved in different facets of the Bar Association so that they can participate in that collegiality that I was speaking of. Uh, I, I think more and more it's generational. And what did you say? I mean, you've talked about the practice of law speeding up and, and that's a lot of technology. Uh, we've touched on collegiality. Do you think those are the two biggest changes to the practice of law over the past 50 years? Or do you think there are other things that I stick think, out? I think because of the speed and the way that we have to practice now, and hopefully not going into court, it has taken away the personalization. You and I have never met. Had we been at the Bar Association, we very likely would have met uh, because um, one of the things that we like to say is, I believe Bar Association. Right. So any day that I'm in Norristown, that I'm there when it's lunchtime, I eat lunch at the bar building and have done so since my first day in Montgomery County, which was August 13 of 1973. I had lunch at the bar building and have eaten there every day since when I was there for lunch. If I finish a hearing at 11.30, quarter to 12, I'll stay for lunch. And I, that's gone because people want to move quicker. We did, you, know, you would get a letter one day and I could dictate on that letter, but it might take two days before the letter went out. Now you get an, an email and 10 seconds later you're responding and then there's a response back to you. So it just moves so much quicker now. And the practice of law is quicker. I'm probably more yeah, it's a lot of The point ones really add up. 
uh, in today's uh, fast-paced economy. Now, let me ask you this. When you're having lunch at the bar, are you going with your clients? Generally, no. Okay, me neither. Uh, especially no, criminal clients. Generally, yeah, especially not criminal clients. Generally, uh, I'm eating lunch with, with one or two or three of the judges. Because Obviously we, not anymore. Yeah, I mean, we've been friends for years. I'm friendly with just about every judge on the bench. Now, what was it like, you know, so I'm now at a point where I have some of my peers becoming judges and me thinking, him, her, really, as a judge? Uh, what was that like when that started happening for you? Was that weird? Uh, it, it was weird. Uh, it really was kind of strange. Uh, when they became judges, one of my partners, uh, Toby Dickman, became a judge. She tried for 15 years, eventually made it. She was with us for 21 years and then became a judge. And she would call the office and ask for me and say, this is Judge Dickman calling. I mean, really, come on, Judge Dickman? Yeah, so in private, are you still calling them judge? No, no. That's good. It, it's difficult when I see some of the judges with whom I'm friendly to remember to say judge or your honor or something like that. And pretty generally, you know, I'm pretty good at it. But uh, Have you ever messed up in court? Um, no, I have not. I've always been able to maintain that, that balance where I, I recognize their position and call them judge. I mean, of course, I mean, mess up by telling them by using the right name, not just mess up in general. I'm sure I'm sure you've messed up in general in court. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm sure we, we all have. A number of times. Yeah. yeah, it was it probably about 12, 15 years ago. We were at a, at a um, bench bar conference, you know, a big conference every year. And Judge Nicholas was was talking. Uh, they provided a seminar and Judge Nicholas was talking and said how uh, he thinks when you're in court, you shouldn't call a judge, judge. You should call a judge, your honor. Well, I've never done that before. I'd always refer to the judge as Judge Nicholas or Judge so-and-so. Uh, and didn't realize, and I asked several of the other judges, how do you feel about that? And some agreed and some didn't agree. They said being calling the judge is fine. But I just thought that was interesting. He wanted to be called your honor when he's in, in court. That's, yeah, it's a pretty specific request. Now, you've spent a lot of time in court. What would you say, if you, off the top of your head, is the scariest moment you've had in court? Uh, scary is when a prisoner broke free and started to run towards the judge. Uh, it's kind of cool. You know, it's kind of interesting. Which side were you on on that? Was that when you were a law clerk? Because when I was a law clerk, we used to be ready for that. We had a whole plan. If, a, if an inmate was coming over, we were ready to go. Did you ever push the, the emergency button? No, we never had to. We did have uh, sheriff deputies in the courtroom with us pretty much all the time. So there were a couple of times where people had to be uh, escorted out. And then there were a couple other times we can talk about at a later podcast where I had to step out because something so ridiculous happened that I couldn't keep a straight face. Yes. But no one ever came over the bench. Well, I've pushed it three times. All right, well, let's go through them. Well, the first time I was a judicial law clerk, judge was on vacation, court crier on vacation, and the secretary on vacation. And I'm sitting in the, in the secretary's seat, and I look at the wall, and there's a button. I said, wonder what this is. Pushed it, and then, you know, 10 <laughs> and guns drawn. That was pretty funny. 
another time, uh, I was and still am a discovery master. Uh, I am now the longest serving discovery master. It's my 24th year. Uh, that started in 1977 for me. Uh, but a lawyer started to get agitated and I tried to calm him down. Uh, he was an older lawyer in his 80s, um, had a cane, and he got upset going like this with his cane, like he was going to come after me. I said, Mr. So-and-so, if you don't calm down, there's a button here that I can push. And in about 15 seconds, there's going to be a dozen sheriff's deputies with their guns drawn running down the hallway. I don't care. And he started to walk towards me. So I pushed the button. And boy, they came running like crazy. Yeah. Uh, they had to restrain him. And then I got reported to the president judge for, for calling the deputies on him. Wait, you got reported to the president judge for calling the deputies? Yeah, that was that, that was Judge Nicholas. So he called me later and said, what was that about? And I told him the story. And he said, oh, he's just an old crotchety old man, which I think now I've become. Now, was this a regular cane or like one with a sword in it? No, just a regular one. <laughs> okay. I mean, scary enough. You know, an 80-year-old coming at you, I could see why you would be nervous. Well, there's not a lot. You know, when, when you do discovery court, there's nobody else in the courtroom but lawyers and me. Right. So, I mean, there's no sheriff deputies or anybody. And here's this guy. I mean, I didn't want him to get hurt. and I didn't want to do it. Uh, but I didn't want to create a commotion where somebody got hurt. And somebody decided to stop him and hurt him. So I pushed the button. It's pretty funny, actually. All right. What's the third time? Uh, the third time was uh, I was in the room. You know, I was involved in a trial. God, 1975, right? No, I'm sorry, 1974 when I was still judge's law clerk. It was the longest criminal trial in Montgomery County history. Went on for close to four months and it was uh, tried by four great lawyers. Bill Nicholas, again, being the first assistant DA. Um, and then Chuck Peruto Sr., Cecil Moore, and Bobby Simone in front of Judge Tredinick, who I was clerking for. And at one point it was with uh, Union, uh, Roofers Union 30B, and they had a lot of interesting people in the courtroom and it started to get out of hand. Uh -huh. um, and the judge was in uh, the roving room. We were sitting in courtroom B and I was standing near there and they're starting to get agitated. I had to push the button. The deputies came in and kind of quieted everybody down. Okay, that one's not too crazy, but makes sense. Sounds like all good uses of uh, the button. Yeah, well, the first one was pretty funny. Uh, yeah, that one was, that one is a little uh, silly. I wonder what this is. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you know, that's their fault for not warning you. And I'm sure it's big and red. No, actually, it's not. It looks like a doorbell. Oh, well, that's even worse. With a little black, it was a little black button on a little thing that yay big and a little button in the middle. I knew what the heck it was. That's why I pushed it. Yeah. Uh, so let's shift gears just for a second. Um, well, speaking of trials and big trials, you know, in 2005, you were awarded the trial lawyer of the year. Uh, why do you think that year? What, what did you do that year? What did you, who did you piss off to get that award? <laughs> well, I had been the president of the Bar Association in 2003. And then in 2004, I was president of the Bar Foundation and had done a lot of different things. Uh, for the court, uh, tried a lot of cases. So I just 
I just figured that I was a kind of an easy selection for the trial lawyers to make. I was also there wasn't one. There wasn't one big case that year or anything like that. Um, I, I normally had a couple different kinds of big trials all the time. I was trying a lot of homicide cases and things, but. So yeah, you've, you've done a lot of both, you know, serious violent crimes, but also some high profile crimes. You represented former Attorney General Kathleen Kane. And my question for you is, do you approach them differently, these higher profile cases? And if so, how? With Kathleen Kane, I did not represent her at trial. She hired a guy from New York who she later alleged was incompetent. Um, I, she hired me for sentencing. She had actually come to me earlier and asked me to represent her and we didn't work out terms and then came to me subsequent to her conviction. And um, I did. I, I represented her at sentencing and I believe that uh, I was in part responsible for the sentence which she received because she had been promised two and a half to five and got uh, 10 to 23 months. And a, a case like that, that's high profile or even a high profile homicide case that's in the newspaper, uh, do you handle those any differently? Do you do anything special about those? No. I mean, you have to, hand, you have to be prepared. I mean, everybody always says that, but it's always true. You, you just have to go in and prepare for it. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example of it. When the judge went to sentence her and gave her uh, the 10 months, uh, the judge then wanted to put her in jail. And I said to the judge, you can't. <laughs> the judge looked at me and said, why not? I said, because uh, the rules are when the sentence is less than a year, yeah, it says you shall uh, set bail. So the judge had to set bail and she remained out of jail for about a year uh, while her appeal was pending. And in a case like that, or any of these other more serious or high profile cases, what is your approach, if you have one, or policy about dealing with the press, the media, kind of the PR piece of the case? You know, we see a lot today, and we see lawyers almost every day, even one of our own uh, Southeast PA lawyers getting in, not necessarily trouble, but trying to work the uh, media side of a high profile case. What, what's your take on that? Well, first of all, I think just with like everything else, you need to be prepared for that. When you're involved in a, in a media storm, you need to go into it knowing what you're going to say. i give you a perfect example. I guess now it's about four years or five years ago, uh, my client kidnapped a uh, baby from the King of Prussia Mall. It was all the rage. I mean, they immediately traced her. There's over uh, a thousand cameras in the King of Prussia Mall area. They saw her car come in, they saw her That's car good to know. Yeah, it is. I mean, they saw her going into the store, they saw her going in, everything she did, she was on camera. So it wasn't any denial. I knew that they couldn't deny, she couldn't deny that she stole the baby, that she kidnapped the baby. So I had a throwaway line prepared for when they asked me what it was, and I said, this isn't a who done it, and it isn't what did she do. This is a why did she do it. And I used that line throughout, and that played well. I mean, that got talked about. You know, counsel said it, not a, a who done it. And it, I was prepared for it. I think, again, you have to be prepared knowing you're going to be besieged by questions by the media. You just and, have to 
try not to say anything stupid. Right. Have you ever like done any training or consulted with any PR people or anything like that? Or is this kind of gut reaction and watching people uh, before you screw up? Um, probably the latter. I mean, I just always considered that you could be in a position where you don't say something. Keeping in mind, probably just like what's going to happen here, clips of what you say are taken. Not everything that you say. It's not a full sentence, but part of the sentence. So you've got to really think about what you're going to say or how you're going to respond in that situation. Do you remember what happened with the kidnapping case? Yeah, ultimately, uh, she pleaded guilty, um, was able to knock out many of the charges on the plea. She got a, a year and a half to three. Sounds like good lawyering on your behalf, right? I, I thought it was really good lawyering because it was limited to a year and a half in jail. Uh, in a kidnapping case normally, especially one that has that kind of media subjected to it, I mean, she should have been looking at seven and a half to 15 years. Yes, that's very good lawyering. So I thought, yeah, I, I agree. I thought it was good lawyering, though. And I'm assuming uh, you never heard anything, no thank you, anything like that. I have found that the cases where you do what I would call the best lawyering, got people out of the most hot water, that's where you never uh, hear from them again. Uh, Her I've heard from many times. Well, that's good. Her her parents, both of whom have now passed, uh, but I do hear from her occasionally. She she thanked me many, many times, as did her parents. Because they realized. I mean, there was just no getting away from that case. There, there was no out. There was no, there was no technicality. There was no wrinkle that we could use. It was just going in and presenting at sentencing, a, a good sentencing hearing with explanation as to why things were the way they were. Uh, just had a good judge that listened. That's good. So now shifting gears to other things you have founded, you helped found or were a member of the founding group or however you want to describe it of the Montgomery Child Advocacy Project. Is that accurate this time? I was on trial. I represented a man who was alleged to have sexually abused his stepdaughter. His wife, mom, sat right behind he and I at trial and they brought in the nine-year-old girl to testify. And she got on the witness stand, she was directly examined, and then I cross-examined her. And when I was finished cross-examining her, she got off the witness stand and didn't know where to go because mom and stepdad were seated with me. And she looked around and was lost. Well, at the time, uh, Assistant DA Demchik Alloy was in the courtroom, saw what happened, ran up, grabbed her hand, and took her out of the courtroom. And several days later, Judge then Risa Furman and Wendy Demchik Alloway came to me and said, you see what happened? Yes, I did. We both worked in the city at the Support Center for Children, and we want to start something like that in Montgomery County. Well, I was the only criminal lawyer involved in the Bar Association that they knew. I was already an officer in the Bar Association, so they came to me, and so the three of us started NCAP, and that was its genesis. And we practiced out of the trunk of Wendy's car. She had kept all the files in the trunk of her car, and uh, Reese and Wendy would go and get these orders signed. I was the first NCAP in Montgomery County. 
uh, as a result of that. And when was this? 1999. Now on the MCAP website, it says they started in 2006. What's going on here? Seems a little shady. That's when we hired Mary Pugh as the executive director in, in 2006. So at that point in time, we were out of the trunk of Wendy's car. Uh, we had uh, negotiated to share uh, 409 Cherry Street. Uh, so we used 409 Cherry Street. And we were starting to become a little bit more sophisticated. We, started, we had a budget. We had a number of volunteers helping us. And we hired our executive director first time. Uh, before that, again, it was me, Wendy, and Risa. And can you explain for those listening that don't know, what is the MCAP program? What does it do? Uh, we started out just providing free legal services to abused and neglected children in Montgomery County. So if they found themselves in any kind of uh, legal situation where their parents' interests were different than theirs, where they didn't have parents, where they only had one parent that was in conflict with the other, then we would become appointed by the court as the guardian ad litem to represent that child. So it pretty much has, that's been the mission and it pretty much is the mission, but we now handle custody cases and protection from abuse cases and things like that. And do you still take uh, MCAP volunteer cases? Yeah, still do. That's good. So now I've got some, uh, what I'll call rapid fire, but they're not that rapid, nor is there any fire involved. What's the best advice you've ever been given, you think? And don't say be prepared. I, I, I won't say that. I know, um, I know you want to. I'm, I'm not, it's, we're not taking that. Now, I think the best advice one lawyer can give to another lawyer besides being prepared is don't take it personally. Don't make it personal. You know, so many cases that I've tried, far more in cases that this didn't happen, I go out and have a drink with that lawyer. Go, go have dinner while we're waiting for a jury. Uh, and you just don't take it personal. And, and when you're in court, you can fight like crazy. But if you take it personally, then it, it, it becomes a fight losing sight of what the ultimate goal is. Whoa, whoa, whoa. back up a second there. Are you telling me you've got a jury in deliberation and you can eat? I can't eat. I'm so stressed. I can't. I can't do anything. You're getting dinner. Uh, well, when you have juries out, you know, we used to have juries go out, especially on Monday nights. Um, try a case, uh, and then the jury's out. This is when there were restaurants in Norristown. Uh, the jury could be out. We go out to eat, or we bring stuff in, go into a judge's chambers, and sit there and watch Monday night football. Uh, and it would be both plain the uh, prosecutor and defense lawyer. There was a lot of collegiality. You just learn not to fight with the people and don't take it personally. Right. Hold and on. We got to drill. We got to drill down in this for a second. It, it, You're it, telling me it makes the practice of law so much more pleasant and so much more fun. I mean, I, I handled a case for three years with uh, the former district attorney of Montgomery County and now representative of the former president of the United States, Bruce Castor. We would go into court and argue our case. It was a civil case. It was a uh, First Amendment case. Went on for three years in front of Judge Moore. And we would 
argue like crazy, could scream and yell at one another. And as soon as we walked out of the courtroom, he would text me something funny. I would respond. Uh, we'd go out for dinner. We'd have lunch together in between. I mean, yeah, never take it personally. Yeah, I think that's great advice. We have to drill down on this dinner situation for a second, though. So you're telling me when they bring in the food, I used to be a law clerk. We would bring in the food for the jury. I'd be lucky if I got a slice of pizza from that pizza, uh, which I did not need to eat, by the way, because I was a little heavier back then. But anyway, we'd bring in the pizza for the jury. And you're telling me you would have uh, the prosecutor and defense attorney back in chambers and you'd get some of that sweet free food as well? We would either order from separately. I mean, really, this is going back a long ways. You know, judges had uh, televisions in their chambers. And we would sit and watch Monday Night Football together and wait for a jury to come back. That sounds pretty good. Pretty good. What's the longest jury you've ever had out? 11 hours. That's the longest? Yeah. What's the shortest? Oh, 15 minutes, maybe. You've, the longest you've ever had is 11 hours. You've never had them go into like a second day. Well, yeah, but I didn't count the, the, the other day. I counted the time that they were deliberating. Okay. All right. We're talking just deliberation time. Okay. So you've had them go a couple of nights. Uh, it never went into a second night, but end of the day, they would deliberate till seven, eight o'clock, judge send them home. They'd come back and deliberate for another uh, half dozen or so hours. So the longest was 11 hours. And in those cases, you getting breakfast and lunch with judges and opposing yeah, counsel yeah. or just dinner? Actually, that was in Bucks County. Uh, and I did take out the prosecutor. We did go out for dinner and, and the state trooper that testified against my client. And did they say you had to pay because you were private counsel? No, no, no. I said, uh, I'll even tell you who it is. I, he's still on the bench, I think, uh, Ted Fritch, Judge Fritch. Um, it was a drug case that, that we were trying. He was prosecutor. I was defense lawyer. And um, jury went out. And I said, grab state trooper. I'm taking you out for dinner. And he looked at me like I was from Mars. I said, come on, come on. I, and, and, you know, we were friendly. We weren't close friends or anything, but friendly because we kind of grew up together in the practice of law. And um, I took him and the state trooper out for dinner, something that I learned a long time before that. And we had a nice dinner. We came back. The jury stayed out. Judge sent them home for the night. And we came back the next day. Uh, Do you remember if you won that one? I did, actually. Nice. He, he was acquitted. Nice. Well, that made the that probably softened the blow for the prosecutor, right? But you know what else it did? Every time I, when, when Ted became a judge, when I appeared in front of Judge Fritch, he remembered that uh, I took him out for dinner one night. Exactly. He wasn't, he wasn't a judge then. <laughs> yeah, no, of course not. Reputations, you know, a, a lifetime to build. It is really all about reputation, too, and, and not taking it personally. Right. No, it's good advice. It's good advice. Well, Mark, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, I think that's all the time we have for today. I think this has been a great episode, great discussion. And hopefully I will see you uh, in the bar building soon. Uh, wouldn't that be great? I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association.
No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Interrogatories, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review. For more information, visit us at www.montgomerybar.org.